Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So we have a little Q&A episode coming up for you in just a moment. But before that, we'd like to tell you about a way you can support the podcast. So we've mentioned this a few times in our closing, but the Basic Income Podcast recently started an account with Glow FM. This is a service that allows people who listen to a podcast to be able to make a small financial contribution to be able to help cover the production costs and so on. So if you go to glow.fm slash basic income, you can become a contributor and and support our work here. So beyond the feel-good feeling that you'll get from supporting our work, you'll also get shouted out at the end of one of our upcoming episodes, and you'll also get access to an exclusive Slack channel where you'll get the first notifications about new episodes and get a chance to discuss with other supporters and your hosts. So we encourage you to check us out at glow.fm slash basic income. And now let's jump into the episode. A number of you have sent us some really good questions about basic income, and we are going to tackle three pretty meaty ones today. This question comes from Aaron Welch over Twitter. He says, I keep hearing that the new income would increase demand for housing, in turn driving up rents, or that the cost of goods would increase to wipe out any benefits of UBI. Is that true? Are there any controls that need to be put in place to stop that from occurring? Jim, what do you think? So this does connect to something we've talked about before, which is concerns around inflation. And as we said before, generally, we wouldn't expect inflation to be a big issue with UBI because in a functioning market, you have competition that basically will keep prices at at a level close to what the supply cost is. And so that extra infusion of cash probably isn't going to do a whole lot. That said, I do think that there are particular areas, housing being one of them, where it does make sense to think more critically about the dynamics here. I think that oftentimes the worry people have is that, oh, if if people with very little money or no money have cash, suddenly that will spike housing costs for a certain segment of the housing market. From what I've seen, there doesn't seem to be too much evidence that would be a big issue. Those people are, unless they're homeless which is a very small percentage of the population, they're finding housing somewhere. And so the difference of of getting a bit of extra support, there's already that demand out there. So there's not going to be a spike in demand. So you wouldn't expect to see a a big shift in costs. But I think that there's potentially, for the middle class, there, there might be more reason to be concerned here that if a UBI policy is resulting in a big net transfer to middle class people, where there is, there does... There can be more flexibility as to what sort of accommodations people might choose uh, for that demographic. Um, that could that could spike market rate housing, and so potentially you could have situations where uh, where developers or where landlords were trying to charge more. Um, and if so, I think that 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 would be a reason to be exploring different mechanisms to to keep that under control. California just passed uh, basically an anti gouging law that limits the amount that rent can be hiked every year. And so if you were to have some sort of national version of that, you pretty effectively put in place protections that that would make it so you, you can't have landlords trying to suddenly suck up uh, a bunch of new money that's being moved here. Yeah, I think housing is is the big one. Um, you would want to watch out for inflation in you know across the economy, and you might find things you wouldn't expect once you had a full UBI. It's one of those you, you don't really know until until it happens. But I think the big one that we can anticipate is housing, and that's where it makes sense to I think have some kind of heavy handed price controls, uh, just so that yeah people can't 
take advantage of of the opportunity. And, and also anti-collusion laws. I mean, it's as long as you have ample supply, theoretically, the the demand should even out enough so that um, so that a UBI wouldn't just mean that everyone's rent goes up a thousand dollars a month. But if the landlords were in coordination enough with each other, then um, yeah, then then they could theoretically take advantage of that. And so yeah, you, you'd want a, basically a, a strong strong antitrust, <laughs> um, and that that gets tricky, you know, on the um, on the local level because one city or state might have really strong enforcement around that stuff and others might not. It's one of those things where I think UBI does start to bring up other issues that need solving anyway. I think ultimately you'd want it that these protections to be at whatever level the UBI was. So if it's a federal program, you'd want federal rent protections on some level and a strong enough agency and well-staffed enough agency to actually enforce that. I think it's a solvable problem. Uh, but it's something that you can't just say that the market will will figure it out. Yeah. I think the other areas where, and again, not necessarily, but you might want to pay extra attention. Uh, one would be college. Mm-hmm. If this, because, I mean, we've seen over the past recent decades, the cost of tuition has risen astronomically. And if that's an area where universities are, are basically saying, oh, we have this extra revenue, let's just pull all that out here. Um Potentially, that is that's offsetting that revenue for the student demographic. Whether or not that's so much of an issue, I mean, you can debate because if you're a student, presumably you don't have, you're not in a situation where that additional income may be made as much of a difference for you. But I think it's another area that we should definitely be looking closely and, and thinking about what might happen and, and what might be the negative repercussions and if there might be some other federal policy to do. Uh, and then I think the other one is healthcare. I think that's another one where we very clearly see we don't actually have a functioning market right now. That costs are are not actually being driven by real competition, and so we would need either some sort of regulations there, or a different system for healthcare. Yeah, and actually that's a good transition into our next question. I'll just add that I think housing, healthcare, and education are the major drivers of inflation. Housing is the one that comes up most readily around UBI because it's a monthly thing that is sort of in the range of $1,000 a month. And so it, it just, it's easy to imagine just that increasing by $1,000 a month, whereas healthcare is more of this, like, and I guess it, it is also a monthly expense as well, generally. But yeah, those are the the big obvious places to look for inflation. And and after that, I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> I think there might be inflation, even like, you know, price of bread type stuff, I don't think you'd see a ton. You might see a little bit, but I don't think it would matter all that much. If everyone's getting, say, $1,000 a month, if the price of bread goes up 10 cents, you're probably okay. And, and I do think it's important that we we actually make the distinction between inflation generally and price gouging. Mm-hmm. Because inflation, again, we have a pretty good sense of what causes that. It doesn't seem like UBI is likely to do it. But the price gouging, I think that's that's where taking a more critical lens to to these different areas, there it's, it's an important thing to do. All right, and so our next question ties very closely into what we were just talking about. This comes from Elisa Batista on Twitter. She says, "I'm a huge UBI fan, but wondering how it fits into the context of overall budget for healthcare, foreign policy, SSI, and other expenses that come with price tags and require a tax base too." So th- this is uh, another major question that comes up. Basically, how do you pay for it? And especially how do you pay for it when we're thinking about things like 
Medicare for all, um, free community college, forgiving student debt. Um, you know, you, you can go on and on, you know, fighting climate change. All of these things cost on the order of probably, if not many billions, maybe even trillions of dollars, and then add on what is, you know, by most estimates around a $3 trillion per year federal program in the form of a UBI. And, and yeah, where does that money come from? And I think one important distinction here is uh, between the startup cost of a program like this, you know, the first five, 10 years, as opposed to what it's going to look like going forward. Uh, something just to use universal health care or Medicare for all, let's say, as as an example, theoretically, that should save money because there isn't the insurance industry, you know, pulling out money and being its own for-profit business that it kind of exists in parallel with the the health industry. And so it would cost a lot of money to get Medicare for all started, but it should, you know, in, in theory, assuming things are working properly, save money in the long term. We have talked to to guests on our program who think that a UBI would save a lot of money through relieving a lot of social ills that we have, you know, less money spent on healthcare, on law enforcement, et cetera. But you, you, it would be a significant cost to start up. Um, I think that money is out there is the super short version of the question, but I think it will require getting a little bit creative about where we're pulling that revenue from. And I think things like a carbon dividend would be sort of a sneaky way to get it started um, without feeling like we're pulling from the same pie that, say, Medicare for All and Free College are trying to also pull from. Yeah, I do think that there's really two different ways of looking at this. Uh, and I, I think you touched on both. The first is, can we as a society afford to do this? And from that perspective, I think the answer is actually a pretty easy yes. Because as you say, once we've switched to a single-payer healthcare system that's cheaper than what we have today, where how that money is actually moving around will look very different, but it means that people and society as a whole are paying less than they were before. And then I think, as you said, similarly with, with UBI, all the savings that come along with eliminating poverty is, is going to be substantial. And so the net ultimate cost of doing all this is actually quite low, I think, compared to what most people talk about. But then, as you said, the flip side is how do we actually put this into practice? And that's, that's where things get complicated. Um, but I think that on that note, I've been heartened to see that it does seem like we're starting to have a bolder conversation around taxation. I think if you look at some of the ideas coming out of the Warren campaign or the Sanders campaign, particularly Senator Sanders' recent wealth tax proposal, you're talking about something which is raising more than half a trillion dollars every year. And so those are the sorts of things that if we were to layer a couple of things on top of that, an aggressive wealth tax, much more progressive income tax, closing the many, many loopholes, uh, potentially thinking about redirecting some of our tax expenditures, like the incredibly generous tax breaks we give around buying multiple homes in some cases, then suddenly you, you do end up having this very large pool of wealth available. Um, and so that that's something where, uh, where, yeah, you are able to then finance multiple trillions of dollars in social programs. Um, I do think with something like UBI, there is a lot of value in developing a model that incorporates a clear clawback approach, such that you are basically, if, if you start to be earning more money, your UBI is, is, is quickly getting sucked up 
in tax revenue, um, which means that when you're looking at the net cost of the program, it's something between five hundred billion and a trillion dollars instead of three or four trillion dollars. So once you get to that level and looking at bold sources of taxation, doing the math here and adding this up to make sense becomes a lot more doable. Yeah, I think the introduction of the wealth tax into the mainstream political discussion is is a big deal uh, because there are a lot of billionaires out there who don't actually have income or have very little income. Uh, at least that gets recorded. and but But they have wealth and maybe they ought to share it. And so that that's one major source, you know, obviously. And yeah, I, I would say a lot of the basic income schemes that I've looked at, you break even at around $80,000 a year in income, maybe 100000 somewhere around there in these sort of upper comfortably middle class range. Um, you are giving about as much as you get for the, the basic income and all its associated taxes. And, and, you know, beyond that, you pay a little bit more and below that you're you're getting money. And uh, some do that directly as a negative income tax. Some do it a little bit indirectly of, you know, an income tax of this much or, you know, various other taxes. But it, it will balance out somewhere around there for, for most of them. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think there are good arguments for having a, the break-even point be a little bit higher. Uh, but however you do it, there probably is going to be a break-even point and it's probably going to be, you know, under half a million dollars and over fifty thousand dollars, and but there's, but yeah, to your point, uh, there are going to be millions of people who don't actually end up financially better because of the basic income. They will just get to live in a world without poverty. The other thing I would add, and there's a whole rabbit hole to go down here. We could do an entire episode on it, but it's we shouldn't be too afraid of some deficit spending around all these programs. That, uh, I mean, the Freedom Dividend uses a lot of deficit spending to finance itself. And generally, there seems to be more and more evidence coming out that it's okay to actually have a budget deficit, if, particularly if it's allowing our economy to grow. That that's something that in the long run may be best for supporting people for having a healthy economy. And so, as we've talked about, since a lot of these programs, EBI, I would say in particular, seemed like they have some big payouts down the road by investing in eradicating poverty, that spending deficit, doing deficit spending up front may not be a bad way to go. Yeah, I, I feel like people generally bring up deficit spending when we're thinking about a program that they have reservations about. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I completely agree. If anything, I am too unafraid of deficit spending. But yeah, we, we could, there's a whole rabbit hole to go down there. And a lot of you know, a, a, a lot of interesting theoretical work that is mostly theoretical about what is too much for the U.S. specifically in terms of deficit spending. But but yeah, I think if the UBI is technically running in the red, that's probably okay. All right. And let's go to our last question, which is sort of a future looking one. What are some potential transition strategies or methods for starting up a UBI? And this comes from Warren Teague, Teague, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Warren. Warren, I'm just going to say Teague. He sent that to us over email. What are some potential transition strategies or methods for starting up UBI? So I think that there's, I see two real obvious paths here. The first is we are starting something much smaller that becomes a UBI over time, and that may be for political reasons. And the other is somehow we managed to really galvanize 
the grassroots of this country and push through a full UBI. And then it's a question of, okay, what does the rampant process look like here? So for the former case, we've talked about this a few times before, but I think that uh, one idea that I really like is starting with some sort of smaller dividend program. So maybe something funded by a carbon tax, maybe it's a, a social wealth fund where you're taking some portion of market capitalization and, and putting it into this dedicated fund that pays out dividends through the returns he gets every year, but something which is starts giving people some amount of money. And then that's something that can either naturally be built over time through the way it's set up, like the wealth fund, or it's setting that precedent. And then you can start to layer things on top of that, such that you eventually get to a basic income level. I think that that allows you to like quite naturally be able to eventually get a UBI because you're just, you start giving people a bit of money and then a bit more and then a bit more. And that way you don't, there's no major shock to the system. You can see as you progress there, is this starting to distort the way our markets or, or other societal systems work? And if so, you can at that point take corrective measures to put things in place to, to make sure that it's not screwing up some aspect of, of the way that, that things are working. But you you then eventually get to that level where, where you have the EBI and, and you've naturally progressed to that. I think if we're talking about a situation where we've decided as a country, all right, we're doing this, and then we want to talk about how we actually make that happen, I think that it's a good question. I, I think there's different ways to go there. I think one of the challenges is presumably you, you might want to go relatively quickly, something over the course of five or 10 years, uh, whereas if, if you were slowly ramping it up, you might be talking about a multi-decade process. Um, but I think that it's something where uh, it could be something where you're gradually expanding across age groups, where maybe you start at Social Security and top up Social Security and then bring down five years eligibility every year that passes. Um, I think it could also be just saying over the course of five or 10 years, we're going to ramp up how much people get here and then hopefully be responsive along that process. Um, but I do think, I, I mean, I, I actually do think it's really, really important to think critically about this because there there really could be some big changes that result that we wouldn't be able to predict in advance until we actually see how things are working. And so being cautious here, I think, is very, very warranted. Yeah, I am definitely a big fan of that first option you outlined, especially if it involves a carbon tax, maybe things like a land value tax, something where a lot of people wouldn't feel the tax so much, but they would, you know, you get your dividend every month. And it's like, sweet, I just got 100 bucks and it happens every month. That's great. And when it goes up to 150, you're you're happy about that. And I, I would like to feel like we were at the point where we can talk about yeah something like lowering Social Security like one year per year or whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, I guess Andrew Yang's pushing that discussion. That discussion's definitely happening. And there's certainly a small but growing appetite for just a full-on basic income right now. Um, but it, it's a huge program, and people are still skeptical. And I think elected officials are even more skeptical than that. And so something like, I keep referring to it as a sneak attack, but something where you like institute a carbon dividend, and it's it's largely a climate change program, but one that balances out the, the cost to your average consumer of instituting you know, a higher price on energy, and then that grows into a basic income. I think that is something where, where you hear presidential candidates and not 
you know, not the furthest left ones talking about it right now. And that's super exciting. There's even a little bit of Republican support for that kind of idea. So I guess I see a political path for that right now, whereas something where um, you maybe it takes 10 years to transition in, but the goal from the beginning is a full basic income for the entire country. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we could be there, you know, maybe sooner than than it looks right now. But I think the idea of introducing some kind of dividend from a, a tax base that, you know, mo- most people won't feel too much seems like the most available path right now. I have this image in my head now of like a scene from Jaws where, where you have this fin above the water mm-hmm. and it leaps out and it's carbon dividend. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but to your point, I think I, I do think it's important that we separate out the politics versus the logistics, because I, I agree with you that it seems much more politically achievable to get some smaller dividend and then ramp that up. Um, and so is it even worth thinking about? What is the scenario where we can actually go whole hog? Who's to say? But let's let's assume it is for a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's important to recognize that even if we have the political buy-in, that doesn't mean the right move is to say, snap, okay, mm-hmm. everyone gets basic income immediately. Because I think, again, anytime like our society is a very, very complex system. And every time you're making a substantial shift, it's going to do things that we, we have no way to predict up front. And so making sure that we are doing it in a way that does ease into it and so we can be able to respond, I think is important. And that, that, that for folks who, are, who might be super excited, if we can build that support, that doesn't mean that we're not trying to do it. It just means that we're being responsible about it. Yeah. And I think then you you get to this question of, do you start with a universal dividend where everyone gets the same amount and that slowly increases? Or do you start with a more targeted population that then expands to more people? I think ideologically, I would favor the first because um, as we've we've dig up some old episodes, we've, we've talked about the advantages of being universal. Um, but I think there's a lot of political will toward the second of, you know, like, why are you know, the whole why are you giving money to Bill Gates, you know, or why give $100 to Bill Gates when you could give $200 to, you know, the poor person on the street. And I think it can be a hybrid of the two, right, that it could be some combination of lowering social security age, plus some universal amount everyone gets plus a higher amount for children, or I think these are the things where you can you can really play with different approaches. Um, as long as yeah, I mean, I think that you you have to be thinking carefully talking talking to people who actually understand how these systems are playing out and, and making sure you're thinking through doing this in a way that is going to be enabling for people and not overly disruptive. Yeah, and I'll, I'll throw out one other potential path there that we've talked about before, which is expanding the earned income tax credit, uh, both in terms of how much it is, but also who gets it. So you start expanding it to caretakers, and then you start expanding it to students, and then eventually you say, you know, it would just be easier. Uh, let's just give money to, to everyone. <laughs> um, you know, that that last part is, you know, a, a little fuzzy, but it is something where people get cash and maybe you can make it monthly and maybe you can make it more. And then more people are just used to this idea of getting a little cash and that doesn't seem foreign and like something they didn't earn. So yeah, that plus a child allowance and I don't know, you start to get there. 
All right, that'll do it for this episode. And just as a reminder, if you like what you hear in the Basic Income Podcast, we are looking for supporters. If you go to glow.fm slash basic income, you can become a monthly contributor to the podcast and help us to continue to do this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice and tell your friends we're always looking to bring more people in. Have a great day. Thank you.